Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Behind us, the midweek action, Burnley slice and dice, Welbs with a worldie and Hugo Lloris chasing the sun. Ahead of us, a weekend with a North London derby and potentially our first relegation. Those two stories unconnected, although for a while this season it could seem. Anyway, we'll be having a look at all that, uh, plus the five subs rule, Wickham and when TV docs go wrong, and much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Bauer. Going out to Wickham Wanderers, currently 90 minutes away from being one promotion from the Premier League. Biggest week in their history and any of ours, really. And so we've got in celebrity chairboys Wanderer fan, Duncan Alexander. Hi, Duncan. Hello. Woo. All right. Also in with us today, celebrity author and admirer of football in general, Tom Williams. Hello, James. All right, Tom. And also here, Lindsay Hooper, who has literally never revealed which club she supports. All right, Lindsay. <laughs> back-to-back appearances, James. That's so, that's so true. Well, it was such a blinder last time around. Uh, did you have a... You probably didn't have a great midweek, did you, because of, you know, the Wolves no. losing against the Sheffield United? And Arsenal, yeah. Oh, yeah. Crikey. All right. Actually, let's round up the scores that have been so far on this Thursday, 9th of July... Wednesday, a merciful Man City kept it to just the 5-0 against Newcastle. Sheffield United handed Wolves a second straight defeat. Burnley beat the Hammers. The champions Liverpool moved closer to a potential points record, beating Brighton. Tuesday, Chelsea moved into third place after Leicester drew at Arsenal and the Blues won 3-2 at Palace. Benteke's first goal at Selhurst Park in 801 days there. Watford won 2-1 against Norwich, meanwhile, leaving the Canaries on the brink. And way back on Monday, Hugo Lloris tried to attack Hyung-min's son, in Spurs, Everton. That one finishing 1-0 to Tottenham, incidentally. We've got uh, Spurs again in action Thursday evening, away at Bournemouth, Everton taking on Saints, and Villa, Man United. But uh, in the meantime, what do you guys want to talk about? Do you want to start with Chelsea moving up to third? I think that was probably the standout game of the week, wasn't it? Hmm. Tell us why, Tom. Well, I mean, before we get on to that particular game... I feel a little bit like all of these post-lockdown matches are sort of coagulating into one big homogenous lump in the sense that I look at score lines of matches that I watched three or four days previously and I've no recollection anymore of what happened in them. Or someone mentions a team and I think, oh, they're going quite well, aren't they? And then I look at their, their form and realise that they've actually lost three in a row. So in that sort of landscape it's helpful when you get a a genuinely memorable game um, which is what we got at at Selhurst Park with Palace sort of refusing to roll over and accept defeat um, and coming really close to snatching a point in stoppage time Um, I think probably the most exciting conclusion to game that we've had since the restart you had um, uh, Scott Dan hitting a post with a header that fantastic last ditch challenge by Kurt Zuma on on Christian Benteke um, and yeah, really enjoyable game uh, and a great result for Chelsea. Puts them up to third. Also had possibly the most dramatic hamstring injury for, for a while uh, with Gary Cahill pulling up. Oh, poor up. Gary Cahill, yeah. I mean, as someone who's pulled their hamstring before, that was, a, you know, 
that was Premier League level hamstring pulling. Um, just on Tom's point of the games kind of meshing into one, I don't think it helps that Chelsea yet again turned up in a brand new kit. They're on their sixth kit of the season now, which beats the five they uh, had in 1991. I think they had more, according to the excellent Museum of Jerseys website, they had more in the 1960s in a single season. But for me, they don't really count because they look like the sort of shirts you buy in those sports shops that sell trophies and fishing rods. You know, everyone, it was just like plain, but with slight but I'm, variations. I'm curious about that, Duncan. Why, why, I would have put it down now to a kind of excess of marketing zeal. What, what would have led them in the 60s to furnish their fans with so many options? Well, I don't think the fans could even buy them very easily back then. I think it was just, um, you know, teams would, the 60s was kind of a time where kits went from being very functional to you know teams started adding their badge they started tweaking collars and sleeves and stuff um yeah i think the variations in the one of those seasons in the 60s for chelsea was very minor compared to compared to more modern times but yeah i mean six kits in one season is pretty good going Duncan, you mentioned the squeal of Gary Cahill with that hamstring. And actually, this match was the one that I opted for no crowd noise. That being one of the standout moments where I wish I maybe had had the crowd noise not to hear him in such pain. Um, But the thing that I noticed, you mentioned Joel Ward and Scott Dan, how vocal they both were. I don't think, and these are things that we're learning, aren't we, from watching in this fashion, is you realise who the real vocal characters in a team are. And they were so vocal, both of them, in that performance for Crystal Palace. It was really interesting watching those dynamics on the pitch and who's doing all the bossing and how the coaches are instructing. And I quite enjoyed for this one because it was so close and tight watching it without the crowd noise I wondered how you both watched it I also watched it without crowd noise I've kind of come full circle on crowd noise in that I was dead against it for sort of ideological reasons before I'd even experienced it and then experienced it and thought, actually it's not so bad but now find it a bit annoying and also a bit a bit fake the idea that you know crowd well, noise it literally is, just, is fake. Well, no, it, well, no, but exactly, but but in a, but in a slightly like troubling way morally, in that you know it sort of suggests that football fans are just there to provide a sonic backdrop to the spectacle rather than being this sort of you know seething mass of humanity. And I, I find that it's actually just a bit irritating. But just very briefly to pick up on Gary Cahill. Am I hopelessly naive to think that it might have been quite nice if Chelsea had stopped, uh, given that he was very obviously crocked? It was very early in the game. You're being very idealistic, I think. Well, on Sky, they gave the example of Paolo Di Canio, sportsmanship's Paolo Di Canio pulling up and, and catching the well, ball. Well, I mean, that, as we've discussed before, is massively overrated, in my opinion. I mean, Di Canio had a header from the edge of the box with quite a few players between him and the goal. I mean... If you're giving out awards for that, then... But yeah, I mean, the Chelsea... Giroud did look particularly guilty when he celebrated, but the Palace players weren't... I mean, they're not in, like... If they were deep in the relegation battle, you, that would be a, a big moment, but, you know, it was sort of fair enough. I mean, you could... William probably didn't realise, to be fair to him, so... I think he... I mean, I don't, I don't want to point fingers, but I think you can, you can tell. If a player suddenly... and You know, a player who was basically trying to catch up with you suddenly and dramatically collapsed. I mean, this is not to accuse Willian. I mean, who knows how anyone might have reacted in that situation, but... He might have thought that Cahill had seen a B or something and was interested in that, or, you know... Even then, could, could, could have still stopped. The only time I think you can see it as a real injustice is if you switch it around and had it been Crystal Palace scoring in that way, would they have done any different? And I don't think they would. 
fair point. Uh, other points of interest from this game included a cracking goal from Wilfred Zaha. He called it the best he'd ever hit a football. And Christian Benteke with his first Premier League goal at Selhurst Park in 801 days. Uh, speaking of rarities, Richard Foster says Palace have had 165 corners so far and only scored one goal from them. Is there a worse record than that? Asked Richard, and surely they should employ a corner coach in the same way that Liverpool, for example, have done so successfully with a throw-in specialist. Well, Arsenal in the early 2010s had a run of 179 corners without scoring um, before it was finally ended by Thomas Vermaelen. I mean, maybe you wouldn't be too surprised that Arsene Wenger's Arsenal were not, you know, expert set-piece uh, deployers. But, um, you know, the flip side, Tony Pulis's West Brom in 2017, I think, got into double figures for goals from corners, which, again, possibly isn't a massive surprise. But, you know, it's that old thing. Corners, England's one of the few countries where crowds get really excited uh, when there's corners. It's sad, actually, that the fake crowd isn't whipped up more for when we win a corner because that would be more realistic I guess but um... it's really surprising as well when you see the height that Crystal Palace have in their defence and they, they used to score a lot of goals I think Scott Dan at one point was one of the top scoring defenders in the Premier League in recent seasons um, and then you look at Milivojevic as a set piece taker and if it's a free kick or if it's anywhere else on the pitch he he really is the person you want to do over the ball you probably put him in your top five players in terms of deliveries from anywhere else but from a corner, it's just chaos. I think they had Max Mayer, didn't they, taken a few more recently. But they're clearly not decided as what's best to approach to have from a corner at the moment. But then Roy Hodgson is the man who wants to put Harry Kane on corners, which suggests <laughs> yeah. perhaps he does just have a blind spot in this one particular aspect of the game. Intriguing. Meanwhile, anyway... Chelsea, with that victory and the 1-1 that Leicester had at the Emirates, moved into third place, as we say. Arsenal, who were looking for their fifth straight victory here, but the game turning when Eddie Nketiah got sent off just four minutes after coming on, after which Jamie Vardy was able to tap in a late equaliser. That is now seven goals in six appearances against the Gunners and 22 overall uh, for this season for Vardy, who is, of course, chasing his first golden boot. Mm, and he's only two ahead of Obama Yang. Mm. Salah scored two as well for Liverpool and he's not far behind. Going to be interesting running for the golden boot because I, I actually think that Vardy could win it. I think if he gets one more goal, uh, it will be difficult for him to be overtaken. He might get caught, but he won't get overtaken. There could be another split of two players sharing it, maybe him and Obama Yang, for instance. But I, I think it could be Vardy winning the Golden Boot and Leicester dropping out the top four. Right. I was going to ask about that, actually, because they are currently four points ahead of Man United, who are in fifth, but Man United have a game in hand against them. And Leicester's final game of the season is against Man United, previous to which they'll be taking on Spurs. Yeah, their running is is slippery, Leicester. Um, on, the, on the Jamie Vardy front, they're away at Bournemouth this weekend, so he might be able to sew up the golden boot in one afternoon um, if he's got his wits about him. But yeah, beyond that, home to Sheffield United, who've come back into a bit of form, and then, as you said, away at Spurs and at home to Manchester United. So um, yeah, Leicester have got their work cut out. And you look at the momentum that, that United have picked up, the fact that Sheffield United are coming back into form... Arsenal look a little bit too far off the pace, but are hitting a bit of form themselves. So I, I could I could well see Lindsay's envisaged scenario panning out. Right. Speaking of being away at Spurs, of course, that's the scenario that awaits Arsenal this Sunday. 
Also, with the tricky run themselves, they have the North London derby on Sunday, then Liverpool at home, and then Man City at Wembley in the FA Cup semi-finals. So all of that in the space of just 10 days. So a lot on Mikel Arteta's plate. Uh, This North London derby on Sunday... Uh, against a team, uh, Spurs, just two points behind them with, again, a game in hand. They'll be taking on Bournemouth this evening. And Monday, last Monday, picking up only their second win in 10 matches, 1-0 against Everton. One of the worst games I've ever seen. And not Tom, even just it? because it was, you know, post-lockdown and there were no people there. It was just awful. Right. But you had three things happen. There was there was a goal. In fact, no, there weren't, I'm not even sure there was many of three things happening. There was a really bad... Uh, own goal. There was the Son Loris bit of argy bargy at half time, and then it just felt like the final whistle uh, sounded. That was that's one that of your highlights. The yeah. final whistle. Okay. The most <laughs> yeah. exciting bit, yeah. no question, was half time when Captain Hugo Loris tears across the pitch to shove Young Min's son in the back as the players are trying to get into the tunnel. Son tries to react, then has to be held back by his teammates. Officially. Uh, this was explained as Loris being uh, unhappy that Son hadn't tracked back over a uh, chance for Toffee Swood Richarlison. I've got to say, I have my doubts. Um, Spurs have always been a pleasant enough side, but I don't know if you noticed, but since they signed that deal with Amazon for a behind the scenes doco, <laughs> they've become headline tastic. They had Mourinho's, well, they hired the most media hype tastic manager around, Jose Mourinho, coincidence, perhaps. They got his predecessor to turn up. Still in the club tracksuit as his son signs a new deal at the club that let him go. They had previously rather vanilla centre-back Eric Dyer suddenly go on a Cantona-esque rampage through the stands, chasing fans across rows of seats in the FA Cup, for which, by the way, he's just received a four-match ban. And now two teammates fighting, not just two teammates, but Lorison's son. I mean, they are trolling us at this point. But if you speak within the club, I, I spoke to Lucas Mora um, this week and they're loving it. They're, they're actually liking that this passion's being shown. Apparently, if you speak to Mourinho as well, this is what he wants to see from his players well, is them demanding more from each other. But, you know, clubs always say that, Lindsay. Oh, you want to see that. You know, you want to see your striker swearing in your face when you haul him off because he hasn't had a goal in three games or, or whatever. I'm not sure. If I was Amazon and I put up a huge amount of money to uh, develop a show around Spurs. I'd want to make sure they had some stories to tell, wouldn't you think? Are you suggesting that Amazon are secretly behind the, the appointment of Jose Mourinho? <laughs> well, OK, put it this way. Do you remember Big Ron Manager? Oh, how can I forget mm. it? I, I, right. okay. Possibly one of my favourite ever series, I would say. Right, which was made by uh, North One, who used to be the people who did in another guy's Football Italia back in the day. Anyway, um, so they basically do this fly-on-the-wall documentary at Peterborough and they, they make sure that big Ron Atkinson comes in as a consultant uh, director of football with the express idea of getting content. And it absolutely worked. Uh, you probably recall, Duncan, the, the choice moment when manager Steve Bleasdale resigned on camera in the pre-game team talk. So today, I'm picking the team. It's my f- fault. Pete! Unknown to Barry, this turn of events has tipped Steve over the edge. Just on what Thomas Point does, um, I resigned, fellas. Good luck, everyone. See you later. Should be quite a haunting moment, but um, Barry Fry and the players just start laughing, um, right. which kind of makes it particularly bleak. Barry Fry's deathless response is, don't sulk, half of you didn't like him anyway. <laughs> 
The best bit about that series, well, there's a lot of great bits, but A, Barry Fry giving Big Ron the biggest lasagna I've ever seen. It basically was the size of a kitchen table um, when he's trying to persuade him to join the club. Um, and also, there's a great moment where Big Ron uses his villa contacts to line up a loan for, uh, for Stefan Moore, Luke Moore's brother. And Bleasdale doesn't want it. He wants this player called Lloyd Apara and signs him instead. And, and Lloyd Apara isn't very good. Um, and it just—it was a very odd kind of setup that. Um, mm. But you know, Peterborough have moved on. Right. Although they remain in League One. So. And so has TV documentary making because this one uh, does look like it's going to be pretty special. I have no idea when it's coming out. What about the game on Sunday anyway? What scoreline do you think the meddling TV supremos have got marked out for this clash with well, Arsenal? It's quite an unusual North London derby in the sense it's the first time both managers are new, taking charge of their first North London derby since 1986, so that's quite a long time. It's the first time they're going to both be outside the top six in their second meeting of the season since 1995. So it is unusual in that sense. Um, What we do know that happens in North London derbies, Tottenham take the lead often and then throw it away. They've dropped more points from winning positions against Arsenal than any other team has against another team in Premier League history. Um, and Harry Kane normally scores a penalty. The big shame about this game was it was moved from Saturday to Sunday because Saturday is the 11th of July. Harry Kane has scored in every month of the year. He's scored on every day of the week. He's scored on every date in a month, so 1 to 31, except for the 11th. But the wait will go on for him to complete the completestness. And the main jeopardy in this match being that whoever wins out of these two, it could determine who finishes higher in the table with the mm. only carrot, the, the only other carrot that's dangling being potentially Europa League football. Carrot or stick? That's the question. Tom, <laughs> what's your feeling about this Arsenal, by the way, haven't won a league meeting away at Spurs for over six years? Yeah, it's hard to know where Spurs are at the moment because they've been very up and down since the restart. Um, They were absolutely awful um, in that 3-1 defeat at Sheffield United. It's just some of the most abysmal defending by a Jose Mourinho team that I think I've ever seen. And then they bounced back to beat Everton, but a a very sort of toothless and unambitious uh, Everton team. Uh, And we're speaking before their their trip to Bournemouth this evening. Arsenal, I think, look in a better position, came out of lockdown with those two defeats against City and and Brighton, but since have looked a lot better. Uh, And I think that the fact that they were so frustrated to drop points against Leicester shows the sort of dynamic they're on. Um, I think that the win they had at Wolves was probably the best result and the best performance they've had yet under under Arteta. Um, and had Nketiah not been sent off against Leicester, they might well have hung on to what would have been another really impressive result. So I think they've probably got the, the form with them. Um, you still don't trust their defence though, do you? I mean, they, they did keep that clean sheet against Wolves, but they do have frailties at the back. They do. I think this. I think the the shape that Arteta has settled on this sort of three four three helps to sort of paper over some of the cracks at the back. I mean, you know, we all know that David Luiz has got a mistake in him. Same for Squadron Mustafi, even though his form has, has been pretty decent of late. Um, but I, I think, you know, when. Arteta first came in Arsenal stopped losing matches and they were drawing a lot of games and you thought well that's progress of a sort but they're not going to get very far they're now winning games and I you, know, you can really see the improvement um, but at the same time Jose Mourinho loves these big head-to-heads um, I'm sure he'll have a, a plan in place uh, and given that they're both quite flaky defensively uh, you know it could make for quite a quite an entertaining watch. Brilliant all right well that's coming up on Sunday 
Still to come in this Totally Football show, we'll be touching on wins midweek for Liverpool and Man City and finding out what's going on at Watford. You're listening to the Totally Football show with James Richardson, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Yeah, that kept you listening, didn't it? Now, uh, Liverpool had a 3-1 win at Brighton, spirited Brighton side. A City, uh, rather less resistance as they rolled Newcastle over 5-0. That Brighton game with a, a brace from Salah, what an opening 8-10 minutes there from Liverpool. That was like their, their kind of fearsome pressing cells of old. Yeah, Liverpool started uh, on the front foot, but um, they were helped, I think. I mean, we've pointed out before, Brighton are the most committed team to passing it out from the back you know Matt Ryan's had more goal kicks played to teammates within the penalty area than any other keeper this season um, and that's definitely something Liverpool would have researched and, and known was going to happen um, it deeply angered Graham Souness post-match as well that that Brighton wouldn't have spent the first 10-20 minutes just hitting it long into the channels um, I don't think that is necessarily the answer either but um, yeah once Liverpool were tuning up to be fair to Brighton they you know came back into it really well and you know Liverpool's defence continues to look a little bit shaky post-lockdown and a really good goal from Trossard, who hit the crossard. Um, and, yeah, they could have possibly equalised. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Mo Salah looks very up, as Lindsay said earlier, very up for uh, for winning the golden boot. Um, even He scored a header from a corner, so maybe he should be the set-piece coach at Crystal Palace. Yeah. Quick straw poll. Does anybody care about who wins the golden boot? You know, in the same way that we follow the title race, but beyond the players themselves, is that a major emotional issue for other people? I quite well, like the golden boot. I mean, yeah, not not an emotional issue, but I think it's it's interesting. You look okay. at some of the the grand names that have that have won it, that have worn it, perhaps when they're relaxing at home. I'm not sure whether you can actually get your foot into a golden boot. You'd want to, wouldn't you? When it first started in the 80s, I think it literally was just like a Puma King that had been sprayed with gold paint. So you could have done. But. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, it's Jamie Vardy's last opportunity really, isn't it, to win? Is it? There's, there's some sentimentality there. And you think mm. about what, what they've gone on and achieved whilst he's been at the club. I, I, for one, would like to see him win it. It's Jamie Vardy's golden boot. OK, good. So Brighton getting into trouble, trying to pass it out from the back against Liverpool. What was the issue then for Newcastle in their 5-0 defeat at Man City? Was it just the fact that they were playing a team featuring David Silva? Yeah, I mean, I think that was obviously quite a big factor. I mean, they, they got hammered a bit on the commentary in Newcastle um, for not being more proactive. But they were missing some very important players, Jamal Asselis. Anasa Maximan, who's, who's been their key man this season, and, and Miguel Almiron as well. Um, and, you know, it, it's always a bit of a fool's errand going to the Etihad and trying to get something. You know, Steve Bruce tried something a bit different. Um, he had John Joe Shelby playing sort of just just off um, Joe Ellington when they were in the defensive phase to sort of try and prevent City from building it up from the back. But then City score from their first attack in the 10th minute. And then, you know, you sort of know that the game is up. So obviously... As a Newcastle fan, and given that they've they've been having a quite a positive time of late, it is demoralising to see your team lose in that fashion without really landing a glove on your opponent. But I think City, when they're in that sort of form, you know, when players like David Silva are in that sort of form, it, it is very difficult to stop them. And, and I, you know, not that not that Steve Bruce would have you know would have decided to just sort of 
chuck this one in the bin, but I, I don't think he'll have lost sure. too much sleep about the fact that they lost and, and, and that they lost in those circumstances. All right. Seth says, your best stat-based tribute for David Silva, also writing in about the diminutive Spaniard. Oliver Boyson is David the greatest Spaniard to ever play in the Premier League. And Scott Simpson, why doesn't Silva get anywhere near the same respect as the hugely overrated Steven Gerrard? The stats don't lie. For for goodness sake, Gerrard won the Champions League and Silva never has. And that's the whole crux of the problem. But anyway, t- tell us about David Silva, everybody. Love him. I, he would be in my top five of favourite players I've ever watched. Um, I think that... He has that ability to make the ball look like it's stuck to his feet. And that is one of the first things that I love watching in a footballer who's got that sort of control. Um, He will be the sort of player as well that would dictate games. Um, I think over the years, some of his performances against Manchester United in the title winning season, that volleyed pass that he made for Dzeko when he he scored a six goal, didn't he? Was just one of those moments that, that you always remember. I think he... He's just been fantastic to watch and a great a great player in the Premier League for a decade. Not for one season, not for two seasons, not for three, for a decade. That is true, but I don't think you can deny that he doesn't get the love that he probably deserves and I do wonder why that is the case. I think it's he's a very undemonstrative player um, and he's also played for a team that has so many other good players as well. So it's not like he's, you know, mentioned Gerrard. He literally dragged that Liverpool team to the Champions League and various other achievements during his time. Silva is just the the shiniest cog in a very well-oiled machine. Um, but I do think it's quite nice. The Strokes once had an EP called Future, Present, Past, and it very much feels like that with City's midfield at the moment because you've got Future with Phil Foden, Present with De Bruyne and, and David Silva's past. And, you know, that could be... The last time, it probably won't be. You went with the Strokes and not Dickens and A Christmas Carol there. <laughs> I think the Strokes have, have offered more to humanity than Dickens, okay. to be fair. All right. I mean, that's a, it's a nice summary there of why David Silva maybe doesn't receive the same consensus vote as, say, Stephen Gerrard does. But for me, it's not an accident that Gerrard won the Champions League, that he, he does do things like drag his team into unlikely comeback wins in the, in the FA Cup and that, which, I mean, I've previously got into a lot of trouble for not subscribing to the loving for David Silva, who's obviously a fabulous player. I just didn't quite get why he excites people as much as I think he's really talented, but he, he doesn't, he's not a difference maker for me. In terms of that's why City have been so underwhelming in the Champions League. I disagree that he's not a difference maker. I think he's a massive difference maker, and I think he's been one of the the key figures of this, you know, the last ten years of success that City have enjoyed. But as Duncan says, he is quite an undemonstrative player, and he's not someone who gets the blood pumping. Um, or the heart beating in the way that someone like Gerard does. I mean, it's a slightly unfortunate comparison because they're, they're two very different players with different backstories. You know, Gerard, the, the homegrown hero, leads his leads his you know his boyhood club to European glory and all the rest of it. I think Silver is an absolutely magnificent football player, and I think it, the fact that he goes about his business in in such a sort of quiet. Um, unvarnished way uh, means that perhaps he gets overlooked a little bit, and I think that you know there is a slightly elegiac quality to his performances now because we know we're watching him for the last time, and and I think you know he was an obvious man of the match last night. I, I can imagine there's going to be a, a lot of praise coming his way in in the next few weeks, and and I you know I think hopefully he he'll get some of the the praise um, that he might have missed out on previously because I think it, it's watching him at his best that you realise what an exceptional footballer he is and how lucky we've been to have him here for the last the last decade. 
we have been so privileged to watch him. And, and James, I think it's just as simple. You're making that Gerard comparison. It's just the relationship with English media. English media lapped up Gerard. You know, they he was always the person talking no, and doing that, interviews. And David Silver shied away from Lindsay, that somewhat. The English so. media love David Silver. They really do. And I understand but it. He's, I'm not no, I'm talking not about good... him, his relationship with the media. I'm not talking about the media not liking him. I'm right. saying that he hasn't done that many interviews. He hasn't been he's, putting himself front and centre in the right. way that a lot of other players do. Well, that's connected for, for me because, you know, personalities are an often used word and often abused word in football. I'm not disagreeing that David Silver is an incredibly talented and sumptuous footballer and a silky delight to watch. But Duncan, you say, you know, maybe he fades it a little bit into the background because there's so many good players around him at Man City. But that's the whole difference. When I say that he's not a difference maker, it's because he plays in a team that performs at an incredibly high level, which makes it slightly easier for someone like him to do all the luxury touches that he does. I obviously miss a whole, a huge amount of his game, huge aspect of his technical ability, and I, I accept that. But when you compare him to someone like Gerard and say with, he's huge overrated, I don't get that. Gerard could do extraordinary things in a, in a much more, against a, a, a technical background that was way more paltry. And I think the fact that he was more outspoken, more a, more, a bigger figure in the press is connected with that. He was a bigger personality. And so that's my issue with Silver is that people talk about him like he was this incredibly fundamental figure. But I feel if he was that, he would have taken Man City further. You know, you could say, yeah, he doesn't really speak to the media much and he's an overseas player, but that's the same as Sergio Aguero. And I think he leaves a more lasting impact. You know, if you think back for the last decade of City, I think I can think of many more key Sergio Aguero moments than I can David Silva. But that's just because he's the main goal scorer and people remember goals. Whereas actually... Now that finally people are waking up to assists and passes like De Bruyne is doing, and that's what David Silva's done for 10 years. He's a f- great player and you are all idiots. That's <laughs> right. my, my, he is a great my last player. word on the subject. Fair enough, Tom. No, I do accept that I'm wrong on this, but I just want to explain why I... Yeah. Well, I don't know, James, you're not wrong. You're, I think you're right. You are and, wrong, James. Um, you are wrong. <laughs> let's just all agree that he's the most creative player in the Premier League since Bitcoin came out and his surname's Silver, so that's a nice little touch. That is a nice <laughs> touch. Just on the subject of assists, Lindsay, for you, you all have been excited to see uh, Kevin De Bruyne reach 18 now for the season. Yeah, he's not far just, off Henri, is he? Just two assists away from it, yeah. He's got four games to break the record. That's a, a storyline to follow then as we head towards the end of this season. Got a good run in as well, City, just quickly. Brighton, mm. Bournemouth, Watford and Norwich. Um, and obviously they're sort of keeping their powder dry to an extent for the FA Cup and the resumption of the Champions League. But you can see them racking up quite a lot of goals in those games. Right. Uh, Wolves, Lindsay, really briefly, because we did kind of touch on this last, last week, the fact that their excellent form might be down to an easy set of opponents. Since then, they've, they've lost two in a row. Is that what's gone on there? I think there was something in that. Maybe them taking it, too lightly, especially the challenge of Arsenal. I just think that there's a very limited amount of goal-scoring opportunities that Wolves are making at the moment. They've focused on defence and being difficult to break down, but if they are broken down, the response to that uh, has been pretty poor. And, I mean, everyone will have seen as well, doing the rounds at the moment, the stats of half-time results and Wolves' bottom of the league if you take score lines at half-time. And maybe they're just a bit slow to, to get started. Right. Fair enough. Good result, though, for Sheffield United, who climb up to seventh place again in the table. Burnley, meanwhile, are close behind them in ninth. 
they beat West Ham 1-0. Surden says, is Sean Dyche the new Sam Allardyce? Sam Allardyce, presumably. It won't be pretty, says Surden, but he'll keep you up. I feel that's a little bit damning uh, Sean with faint praise. Yeah, I, I disagree that Burnley aren't a good team to watch. Uh, and I, I don't think they, uh, you know, they play quite direct football, but they don't play bad football. Dwight McNeil is a fantastic footballer, a proper sort of throwback winger. Um, and they're a team where everyone knows what their what their job is. And I think you, you can compare them to, to West Ham um, in that respect, in that whereas Burnley consistently look greater than the sum of their parts, particularly when they've got all these injuries, they're playing Eric Peters, a left-backer, on the right side of midfield. Uh, and West Ham consistently look much less than the sum of their parts. I mean, in terms of the names on the team sheets, it shouldn't have been a contest that game, but, but West Ham just don't have any sort of identity and, and Burnley have a, you know, an extremely well-honed, recognisable identity and you know Sean Dyche deserves a lot of credit for that and you know obviously Jurgen Klopp is is going to be manager of the year and, and rightly so but along with along with Chris Wilder I think Sean Dyche is is probably the best of the rest. On the subject of the respective benches and respective squads between West Ham and Burnley uh, five of Burnley's bench uh, in the game five of the nine had never played for the club before Another one had played a whopping two minutes. That's extraordinary. Well, West Ham had £75 million worth of players sat on their bench, which kind of brings us on to another stat about Burnley, uh, which is the fact that Sean Dyche has only used seven subs of the possible 25 that he had been uh, able to make in the five games since the restart, since the introduction of the five-sub rule change, which is extraordinary, uh, really, given that... I don't think that's through choice, though, James. No, no, I agree. Well, I think it possibly is through choice because he famously did this pre-COVID-19. There was a, a couple of Christmases ago, he named an 11 on Boxing Day, then named the same 11 two days later for Man City away and didn't make a substitution in the entire match. So I just Do you think, think it's like fantasy when you just forget the deadline? Yeah, I think Deitch is like, oh, it's injury time. I didn't make any subs again. It's like, you know, could happen. Can we just touch on West Ham briefly as well? Yes. Yeah. Their fans were obviously wildly despondent at this display. You know, after a couple of better performances, they uh, they're back in it. I mean, they're still they're four points clear of Villa and Bournemouth, who do have that game in hand. But um, we've never seen in the three points for a win era a team with thirty-one points stay up. And both West Ham and Watford, as it stands, have 31 points and possibly could not win again this season or get a point and both stay up. So what that says for the relegation battle. West Ham have got Norwich and Villa. Yeah, I mean, it's unlikely they both will end on 31, but it is definitely possible that this, you know, it would would be a new low in more than one sense, I think. Right. On the subject of the five sub rule change, have we all seen these kind of hints that that's likely to be adopted as a permanent measure next season as well? And how do you feel about that? I think it would be terrible because it uh, would give a massive advantage to the bigger, richer clubs um, with bigger, richer squads. That's what I think. I, I understand that. I also can understand why it could come into fruition because... The game's evolved. The season's getting longer. Um, Pre-season now, there's all these tours as well. I think we have a lot of players that are suffering more from burnout than ever before. So it would be a way of freshening up teams. And 
if the TV rights, if we actually see football moving in a direction away from that three o'clock curfew on a Saturday, and then we we experience football more in the fashion that we've experienced it in lockdown, I think that you have to, because there's so much football and only a few days between each game. Are they saying it's only going to be for one season or are they saying it's going to be forever? I think it's if the, if they actually readjust the way that the TV rights are allocated and how mm. many games can be televised. Um, so the way that we've been enjoying football the last few weeks, if that was to be something that comes in and introduced on a more permanent basis, which is, I think, perhaps part of the, the figuring, I think they would have to. On one side, in the Premier League, you could say it's positive because, you know, young English players, you Phil Foden's from a season or two ago, might get more opportunities to play. But then... In the lower leagues, you know, a lot of these teams can barely name five subs, um, let alone nine, which it would be with this new ruling. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm not. I think three. Why don't let's compromise and say four? That's nice. <laughs> there you go. All right then. With that sorted, let's move on. West Ham, as you mentioned, four points above Villa and Bournemouth, who each have a game in hand. Uh, in a similar position are Watford after their much-needed win against Norwich. What is going on? With the Hornets, are the team that previously could beat the champions but almost no one else actually going to stay up? And how do exactly you fall behind against Norwich? Well, uh, after this, we'll be exploring all of that. I thought I'd never see you again. I missed how you made me feel, the excitement you brought me, but I never stopped loving you. Did you just say something, mate? Oh, just looking at the Premier League fixtures like... Absence makes the heart grow fonder, so it's never been a better time to be a football fan. Celebrate with the Acker Cracker from Paddy Power. It covers all games on all markets, and if one leg folds, you get a free bet. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, minimum odds of 1-5 to five on for each leg. T's and C's apply, 18 plus, begumbleware.org. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Mike Parkin of From the Rookery End podcast. Yes, it is a Watford podcast from The Athletic. Thank you so much for joining us. You're more than welcome. Nice to be talking about a win at last. Well, absolutely. And and early on on Tuesday, going behind to a, a team that hadn't scored a single goal since the restart, you must have been fearing the worst. Well, absolutely, but it's a, it's a common feeling for, for us Watford supporters, so not massively surprised. But as you know, Watford are known as the, the family club, the friendly club, so seeing another team in, in dire straits, we thought it only fair to give them a, a hint of hope. Um, but yes, we managed to snuff that out eventually. But uh, yeah, made hard work of it, but an absolutely vital win for Watford. I think if they hadn't gone on to win that game, I think pretty much the season would have been over, to be honest. Crikey. Well, the victory sealed by that Overhead kick from Danny Welbeck. Watford players have only scored three times since the restart and two of those were spectacular aerial efforts. Who did it better, Craig Dawson or Welbs? Well, I think Welbeck's was was more um, was more elegant, shall we say, but I think Craig Dawson's was more, um, perhaps more important. I don't know. I'm going to give it to Danny Welbeck. It is an opportune moment to point out that Craig Dawson is now in the top five scoring defenders that are currently playing in the Premier League. But to answer your question, yeah, Danny Welbeck was uh, was was the better goal. A thing of beauty, elegant uh, and much needed. So you're four clear as it stands. Villa and Bournemouth, the teams below you, both have a game in hand, but they are Villa and Bournemouth. You have big games coming up, uh, Newcastle and then West Ham. And then the final two of the season are against Man City and Arsenal. So uh, absolutely vital that you get results in these next two. 
Yeah, absolutely. The season comes down to the to these next two games. It's simply put, I'd rather not talk about Manchester City as a Watford fan. Uh, there's still some rather open wounds uh, when it when it comes to those guys. And you know, Arsenal. They've turned the corner a little bit, aren't they? You never know quite what you're going to get from Arsenal, but I think it's fair to assume that uh, that Watford probably won't pick any points up from those last two games. So, yeah, huge opportunity, really. This weekend against Newcastle, I think, is um, off the back of their drubbing by by Manchester City. I think it's an opportunity to, to Watford to, to hopefully put it to bed. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think if we can win that one, I think that might be it, done and dusted. I think Watford might be safe for another year by the skin of their teeth. I mean, to be perfectly frank, I don't think they deserve to, to stay up. The, the form throughout the season has been patchy at best. They've just been woefully inconsistent. Um, we'll have seen you'll have seen they laboured to that win on uh, on Tuesday against against Norwich. They just haven't really been good enough. And if it wasn't for the for the ineptitude really of other teams around us, then Watford would have been dead and buried a long time ago. But I think a win against Newcastle and against all odds, they they may well stay up. Well, they have improved under their third manager of the season, uh, Nigel Pearson. What, what's the plan, Mike, to stop this happening all over again next time around? Hire Claudio Ranieri and have a go at the title? <laughs> yeah, clearly. Yeah, that, that, that's it. Uh, job done. I think it's it's difficult. I mean, if you look at Pearson's reign at Watford, I think he's got 23 points, I think it is, from 20 games, which, you know, you're obviously not going to win the league with, with form like that, but it is safely mid-table form. And I think really that's what, what Watford are, are hoping for and expecting at this moment. So it's very difficult to judge Nigel Pearson on this period of play, because not only is he did he take over a team that was adrift at the bottom let's not forget that Watford had been written off by most people before Nigel Pearson came in they were in miles at miles adrift at the bottom yeah he so was he six points a, from safety yeah so he's done a good job to bring them back from the brink and then of course playing in this sort of slightly surreal atmosphere week in week out it is I don't think we can ignore that either it is it is difficult we've seen the teams down at the bottom who you'd have thought would all be scrapping for their lives really struggling to to hit their strides so very very difficult to judge Nigel Pearson on, on what he's done. I think the bottom line, if he stays up, he will have done an incredible job. I think the bigger issue for, for Watford is that it, it looks like the squad needs an overhaul. We we ship too many at the back. We found scoring an, an issue. Um, Ismail Assar started to find a little bit of form in the final third of the of the season. And Danny Welbeck's obviously scored that wonder goal against Norwich, but he's been injured for, for long swathes of the season. Troy Deeney hasn't really chipped in with, with many goals so the squad does need a, a pretty big overhaul and uh, and the Pozzos really haven't looked that willing to, to make massive sweeping changes to the squad before it's been sort of a bit of a bone of contention for Watford fans over over summer breaks that they haven't really addressed issues particularly the defence so if Watford are lucky enough to stay up I think that there needs to perhaps less looking at the head coach and more looking at the at the playing staff. All right Mike, ahead of a a dramatic-looking end of season, many thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Mike Parkin from the Rookery End podcast. Stat, out of the 91 teams in England's top four divisions, Watford are the only one yet to win a game 1-0 this season. So maybe that's the scoreline I can expect to see on Saturday then, James. Are you going along? Yes, I'm covering that one. All right, OK, big game. Uh, hands up, by the way, who pre-Tuesday remembered that Danny Welbeck was at Watford? Oh, I, I, it drifts in and out of my consciousness. I just, I don't even remember the last time Danny Welbeck scored before that goal. Can you? Well, two years ago. Two years ago. But can you remember the game or the goal? No, no, no. He, he actually, in his post-game interview, he cited some of his favourite goals of the past, his debut goal for Man United, which was, you know, a, a decent strike from range. And also mm. his goal 
in the Euro uh, 2012 championships against Ooh, Sweden. Oh, the backheel back volley. Yeah. yeah. He's, um, he's very much the English Lucas Podolski in the sense that his ratio of international goals to club goals is, you know, very high. So, recall for Euro 2020 next year? I say yes. Good. After this, we'll have a quick roundup of what else is happening this weekend and also discuss Wickham Wanderers. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Listener, you're excited. I'm excited. Wickham are going to Wembley. They swept past a feel-good side Fleetwood this week featuring Shed Evans and managed by Joey Barton. 6-3 after a 2-2, that's on aggregate, after a 2-2 draw Monday night. They're going to be facing Carl Robinson's Oxford at Wembley. And if they win... They will be in the championship. They've never been in the second tier of English football before. Duncan? Yes, that is true. And it would be a good achievement. I mean, possibly a bigger achievement for Oxford, if you think that they were uh, in the non-league 10 years ago. So, you know, they've really come up... um, pretty fast but they will obviously point to their their big heritage in the 1980s of a few seasons in the top flight and the milk cup so you know they've got that over us but um it should be quite a contrasting game of styles oxford very much the kind of footballing team of league one wickham right. less so shall we say well you you had 21 percent possession against fleetwood 21 mm. duncan seven shots to fleetwood's 21 although i note with interest Four of yours were on target, but only three of theirs were. Is it the M40 derby? Is it the Thames Valley derby? What? It's So Oxford fans will, will maintain that it's not a derby at all and that they only care about Swindon, which is their decision. Um, but yeah, it's the M40 Classico, I think. Whoever wins it gets uh, control of the Stoke and Church uh, bypass for uh, for a couple of years. So, But I mean... I mean, we've talked about corners earlier today with Palace not being able to score them. Wickham, obviously, we've got Joe Jacobson, who featured on the Totally Football League show this week, who, let's not forget, scored a hat-trick uh, against Lincoln this season, two of which came directly from corners, scored directly from a corner in the first leg against Fleetwood, hit the bar from a corner in the second leg uh, against Fleetwood, scored from a direct free kick the last time Wickham were at Wembley in 2015, kind of hit the bar, hit the keeper and went in, one of those. So, you know, yes, you might not be able to string 50 passes together a la Manchester City, but when you've got Joe Jacobson, anything's possible. All right. You've also got Gareth Ainsworth, uh, who is the longest-serving manager in English football, although, as I recall earlier on this season, on our uh, bitter rivals, the Totally Football League show, mm. he was issuing a bit of a come-and-get-me plea. Is his future in any well, way contingent on what happens in this final on Monday? Well, loath as I am to criticise our friends at the Totally Football League, so I thought they, you know, I don't think it was that much of a of a come and get me plea. I think it was at a point when Wickham were about to be taken over, which has now gone through. Um, the club is much more secure now. They've got, you know, they're planning for the future. So I think, yeah, I mean, he's not going to stay there forever, obviously, but I think he's he's built something at the club that is fairly unique and whether it's you know easily transferable to another team is is a bigger question you know he could have gone to maybe Sunderland or Millwall this season and chose not to so right. i don't think it's reliant on us winning at Wembley but yeah we'll see will he be wearing that leather jacket again for monday's game well the weather forecast for next week looks quite good so you imagine it might be quite hot at Wembley you know kind of sultry july evening so 
whether he will be wearing that jacket remains to be seen. I mean, you know, I'm thinking maybe the, the denim jacket that John Bon Jovi wore when they played there in 95 might be a better choice. That would work for him. All right, excellent. Well, where can we see that game? Is it on telly? It's on Sky, yeah, 7.30 kickoff on, on Monday. What sort of celebrating do you think he'd do? I remember seeing um, Chris Wilder stand on the top of a dugout when, when he was at Northampton. Mm. I'm just wondering what you think that Gareth Ainsworth would pull out, especially if you've got well, the leather jacket on. He's got a very close relationship with um, Adebayo Femme when there was a nice touch at the end of the uh, second leg where they walked off the pitch, having both been interviewed by Sky, you know, arm in arm. Uh, sort of into the distance, like the end of a, a Netflix series. It looked very nice. True Detective season finale. So, yeah, just a kind of emotional hug with uh, with Akin Fenn would be good. Brilliant. All righty. Good luck with that, Duncan. And, of course, to Oxford and May Football be the real winner and etc. Tweets. James Legg says, I'm amazed that during your recent discussion of goalkeepers who become managers and how rare they are, you neglected to mention the former Deportivo and Atleti keeper, Jose Molina, who, of course, famously debuted for Spain as a winger, in curious circumstances. Uh, see Alvaro Romeo for details. Who won the Hong Kong Premier League huh, with Kitchi in uh, 2015. Yeah. Well, that opens up a whole new paradigm of goalkeepers doing other stuff, doesn't it? So, I mean, Hull City had Alan Fettis up front for a few games in the 90s towards the end of the season, and he was uh-huh. actually quite good. So he was okay. their goalkeeper and banged in a few goals. So Right. Also, if Harry Kane goes into management for that one appearance when he was in goal for Spurs, would he be classed as a, a previous goalkeeper? I'd forgotten Harry Kane was in goal for Spurs. When was that? He did it in the Europa League, didn't he? Did he? Speaking of wingers turn goalkeepers, it would be remiss of us not to herald uh, Lucas Ocampos for his performance for Sevilla against Abar the other night. Scored the only goal of the game, then went in goal at the end. Pulled off a stoppage time save um, and made sure that Sevilla got all three points. Brilliant. All right. We'll touch on uh, one or two more of the big headlines from Europe in a second or two. But first, to check uh, the Premier League weekend fixtures, which ones grab your attention. Saturday, it's Norwich against West Ham, Watford, Newcastle, Liverpool, Burnley, Sheffield United, Chelsea and Brighton, Man City. Then on Sunday, Wolves take on Everton, Aston Villa... We'll be up against a Crystal Palace side on a run of four straight defeats and Bournemouth host Leicester. What's it all about for you this weekend, Lindsay? I know you're going to Watford. Is it all about the big games at the bottom, that and the Norwich-West Ham game? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm focusing on the the relegation spots for this weekend. Um, That will be a huge game, the one that I'm going to, Watford-Newcastle. I don't think we can underestimate as well how much Aston Villa need points against Crystal Palace on Sunday. Mm. Um, So those will be the two fixtures that I will have my full attention this weekend. Todd Wilde says, is there any hope left for Villa and Bournemouth? Please say yes. I mean, the four points adrift, but with a game in hand. So it's, it's not over. It's not over, but it is if you if you get my drift. I think right. no uh, you, you you just wonder where they're going to get these points from. I think the bottom three, as it stands right now, as we're as we're recording this, will be the three that go down. I tend to agree with Lindsay on that. The one thing I would say for Villa is that they do have a couple of what look like winnable fixtures. Uh, obviously, we, we don't know how they're going to get on tonight against uh, Manchester United, but then they're at home to Palace uh, and then they're away at West Ham on the last day. So potential for a bit of last day drama there um, but yeah I, I think it is hard to see given that Norwich are down basically already I, it is hard to see Villa and, and Bournemouth getting out of trouble particularly given that the form that they've each shown since the restart 
So they they need four points just to get on level terms, don't they, with Watford? Mm. And then if Watford get anything else, then they're going to need at least two wins. Well, one or two other details that you may find crucial before the weekend's action gets underway on Saturday. Uh, the tea time clash between Chelsea and Sheffield United. The Blades haven't beaten Chelsea since November 1993. What was number one then? Meatloaf's I'd do anything for love brackets, but I won't do that. Norwich, West Ham. West Ham haven't won a league game at Carrow Road since February 1973, when topping the pop charts was Blockbuster by Sweet. And in a similar vein, Liverpool taking on Burnley Saturday at 3 o'clock. Burnley haven't won at Anfield since 1974 when Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas was number one. Yeah, it also slightly predates the first McDonald's opening in the UK. We're, you know, it's all about restaurants reopening at the moment. Um, but that was the early 70s. But anyway, this game for me is, you know, I, I kind of want Liverpool to set more records this season. I think they, you know, kind of would would underline the uh, the season for them. And obviously they're they're close to setting the record of winning all 19 home games in a in a top flight season, which has never been done before. Sunderland obviously won all theirs, but it was fewer back in 1892. Um, but this fixture could be a tricky one. I mean, we've talked about how Burnley have been decent. Um, Liverpool won 4-2 last year in this game. Um, Ashley Westwood did a Joe Jacobson scored directly from a corner. Liverpool, as we mentioned, I think before, eight points now from reaching Man City's points record for the season with 12 points left to play for. All right. Well, let's get some odds on some of the weekend's games with Lee Price talking to Ben Green. Well, what an introduction that was. Yes, listeners, it's me on the line with Lee Price from Paddy Power, your favourite bit of the show. And Lee, let's start, please, with the North London derby that is coming up. Give us some numbers here. Hmm. The eighth place derby is what I was going to mock it as. Um, but actually, recent results mean that Arsenal could finish as high as sixth. So there's something. A red card in this fixture is priced at seven to two. Could be worth a nibble, a bit like some of the tackles. We make Tottenham the favourites of this one, though, at seven to five. Arsenal priced at nine to five. The draw is 12 to five. Okay, we heard about Watford and their big result against Norwich. Uh, they are up against Newcastle. Can they get the result here that should all but confirm their safety? I questioned our traders last time about the odds for Newcastle to beat Man City. 25-1 to 1 they were. Of course, they promptly lost 5-0. So to all the traders at Power Tower or working remotely, I'm sorry. I should never have doubted you. I won't do it again. And certainly not here because you don't fancy Newcastle either against Watford. Watford odds on to win this one at 8-11. The Magpies 7-2 to 2 to get the three points. The draws 13-5. I'm sticking with our traders. And just off the back of that, Lee, give us the overall picture for the relegation battle. Mm, it's a pretty clear picture, actually. We don't even offer a price to Norwich. They're goners. Uh, Bournemouth are 1-16 to to go down. See you later. Villa 1-6. to We think it's staying at the bottom three, barring a miraculous night of results on Thursday evening. Um, for one of the two above them to get sucked in, it's quite a long shot now. West Ham 4-1 to to go down. Watford, similar price, 9-2. We think the bottom three have gone. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. If you're a fan of the Continental Game listener, make sure to catch our European edition, which is with you every Tuesday morning. In the meantime, there has been loads of news from midweek games all around the big European leagues. In the Bundesliga, Werder Bremen stay up. 
A 2-2 draw at second division Heidenheim on Monday, enough to uh, seal their place in the top flight on away goals. And that means they can continue their, was it, 39-year run in the top flight. Uh, bet they were celebrating on the Monday. Verder on the dance floor. I'll move on. In La Liga, Espanyol, meanwhile, go down uh, after a 1-0 defeat in Wednesday's derby with Barcelona. The goal from uh, Luis Suarez. That brings to an end a quarter of a century of top-flight memories for uh, Barcelona's neighbours. It's quite poignant. In Serie A, meanwhile, there was a whopping game as Milan faced Juve at San Siro, which is obviously obviously quite a big fixture, this. But coming into this, Juve had just gone seven points clear at the top and had just had their probably their best performance of the season, a 4-1 win in the, in the derby with Torino at the weekend. Milan, though, at the weekend, had just beaten Juve's title rivals Lazio 3-0 in Rome, when they faced each other on, on, at the San Siro on Tuesday, little in the opening half gave any idea that the game was going to be in any way memorable. Goalless at the break. But one minute into the second half, Adrian Rabio picks up the ball deep inside his own half. He beats one man, nutmegs Theo Hernandez, surfs past Romagnoli, and then lists it back across Gigi Donnarumma for an extraordinary opening goal. Not just an opening goal in this game, but that was his first goal for Juventus. It's been a deeply disappointing season for, for Rabio. Did you see this goal? It was extraordinary. I did, yeah. I mean, Rabio, a very elegant player on his day, but has never been a goal scorer, um, certainly not in his PSG. Is. So yeah, there were quite a few people in, in France who sat up and, and took notice when he did that because, uh, yeah, it's not something he does very often. Huh. Well, six minutes later, it was 2-0. Juve had lofted a ball over uh, Milan centaurs, which left them utterly bewildered, and Ronaldo just kind of skipped past and, and made it 2-0. He's now on 25 goals in the league for this season. Uh, that was Juve looking home and hosed, except that 10 minutes later, they were 3-2 down. Dangerous lead, isn't it? <laughs> it is, Duncan, funnily enough. So there was an Ibrahimovic penalty, then Frank Kessier, and then Rafael Liao completing uh, well three goals in five minutes to completely turn that around. Juve's defence without Chiellini and Delict here and really struggling, and Milan smelling blood, uh, hunting a fourth, which they got from the prolific Ante Rebic, who made it 4-2. Rebic has been one of the real success stories of this second part of the season. Uh, which has been really good for uh, the Rossoneri at last, who seem to have found a bit of stability. They've beaten Roma, Lazio and now Juve in quick succession. They're closing in on fifth place. And you think, finally, they have a blueprint for the future. So that's why they are openly lining up a replacement for their manager, Stefano Pioli. Poor bloke. It's, it's kind of the worst-kept secret that he is going to be dispensed with at the end of the season. They're bringing in Ralph Rangnick from the uh, Red Bull organisation. Uh, but Pioli is doing an amazing job. In the meantime, Juve losing didn't really reopen the title race, just in case you were wondering, because Lazio, against uh, relegation-threatened Lecce, managed to lose 2-1. Huge game coming up on Saturday as Juve take on the extraordinarily informed Atalanta. Oh, and Milan, if you want to see what Milan looked like for yourselves and you haven't so far, why not tune in on Sunday as they travel to Gennaro Gattuso, former Milan legend, and his um, Napoli side. That's all very exciting. Napoli apparently poised to tie up a move for Lille striker Victor Ozimen, um, who will cost them a pretty penny. Yeah, that penny was the feeling, and now they're talking about him maybe preferring the Premier League. 
Yeah, I think he's had quite a lot of offers. So um, uh, arrived at Lille from uh, from Belgium last summer. Very successful first season. Scored a, a whole heap of goals. I know that he's been to Naples and has met Gattuso and has been out for dinner with with him and De Laurentiis. And I, th- I think the feeling in France, at least, is that is that Napoli are in are in pole position. Um, interestingly, the transfer market in or the f- the first half of the transfer window in France closes this evening. Um, because they they opened their transfer window in mid June because a lot of the French clubs were worried that um, they were going to miss out on uh, transfer income, which uh, a lot of them rely on. So they opened their transfer window for transfers only between French clubs in mid June. Um, but then FIFA ruled that they couldn't just keep the transfer window open all summer long. So it closes tonight for a month. It will reopen in mid August a week before the Ligue 1 season starts. And so teams will be able to sign players during that period, but they won't actually be authorised to play. So you're going to have players signing for clubs and potentially not even being able to turn out in pre-season friendlies. Um, so another spectacular uh, Tom, post-COVID-19 uh, bit of management by the French that's football authorities. Mad. So the, the business about opening it early was also to help them get their books settled by... By, by June 30th. Transfer income by yeah. June 30th. Yeah. And then FIFA said, yeah, but you can't keep it open. I had no idea about that. Yes, well, FIFA has rules on the total length of um, the summer transfer window. And for the other four major European leagues, the, the window will open um, at some point in the next few weeks, I guess, once the, once the domestic seasons conclude and is expected to run until beginning of October. Um, but if if uh, the same was true in France, they would have had the advantage of having had this extra trading period because they opened this internal transfer window in mid-June. Uh, right. So a month of no transfers in France awaits. And, wh- and, and then only opening again, as you say, a week before the season starts, which is when? Uh, which is going to be the penultimate weekend in August. It's looking at the 22nd and the 23rd of August, I think, for the first weekend right. in, in Ligue 1. Um, and yes, the the window will open on the fifteenth of August in France. The French equivalent of Jim White, Jim Blanc, will be having a busy day that day, <laughs> wouldn't it? There'll be a flurry of transfers going through. It's, I mean, France has not handled the coronavirus period that well, is it fair to say, with the stopping the league and then window antics? Oh, completely. I mean, like this, uh, sort of figures in in French football have all been quite wary of of criticising the decision to halt the championship but I think with hindsight and given that football has managed to resume so successfully in all the other major leagues I mean it it does look like a pretty calamitous decision Um, and also you know French clubs are more dependent than than, um, any others in terms of the top five leagues when it comes to generating revenue from, from transfers and this is just you know another added complication. Fascinating stuff. Tom, thank you so much for that. Uh, we will be checking in, of course, on all the big Euro stories, as I mentioned in Tuesday's show. Before that, Sunday night, we'll return with another totally football show. So do hope you'll join us for that. For today, many thanks to Lindsay, to Duncan and to Tom and producer Charlie. And you, listener, have yourselves a great weekend. We'll catch up with you Sunday night, Monday morning. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees.
Media.